think the biggest challenge was the very beginning and taking that first step. Uh, and you know, I, I was in a really cushy high-end job at a bank and then I was surrounded by so many really nice and great people but knew they could be happier doing something else. And they, I just kept saying like, why are you doing it? Like, go, just go do it, man. And they're like, oh yeah, like, I will, I will. And I looked at myself and went, you're, you're telling these people what to do, but you're not doing it. Like, I can't be one of these people that in 20 years time goes, yeah, oh, I wanted to do that as well. And as much support as I had around me, that was all on me. And that was probably the, the hardest thing I had to do. Welcome to episode 137 of Be The Drop, a weekly interview podcast sharing stories from people who inspire and motivate others to help teach you how to tell your story. I'm Amelia Veal, Director at Narrative Marketing and firm believer in the superpower of storytelling. Making a living as an entertainer in any field is challenging. As a professional magician, the opportunities to do so are very limited. To be successful in this field requires patience, discipline and resilience, plus maybe a pinch of magic. Matt Tarrant is one of Australia's leading magicians and mentalists. Matt has sold out at the Adelaide Fringe Festival for the last six years, earning him a stack of awards. His shows are packed with interactive, engaging magic and mind-blowing mentalism. In today's episode of Be The Drop, Matt shares the highs, lows and lessons he's learned from building a business model as a professional magician. He also explains why an important element of his business is to help nurture and support emerging performers. This is Matt's version of Be The Drop. Considering starting your own podcast? At Narrative Marketing, we deliver a full range of podcast production options. Or if you'd like help getting started to produce your own content, I also deliver podcast training programs. Hit the link in the show notes for more. Matt, thank you so much for joining me on our next episode of Be The Drop. My absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm excited. You've got an item of significance. I do. And that's something to give us a bit of background and tell us about what you do. Yeah. So I'm a magician and a mentalist. Um, and my item of significance today is this, which is uh, an impossible bottle. It's kind of like an old milk bottle, I guess you'd call it. Uh, and inside there is a sealed deck of playing cards. It's kind of like, you know, the old ship in a bottle. You, know, you used to see people have these on their bookshelf or whatever back in the day. This is something like a magician version of that, where there's a deck of cards that's completely sealed. And the question kind of is, is what? How does that actually happen? So if that's possible, I guess anything's possible, really. And this is kind of a message that I like to live by. So I have one of those on my desk. And as a lot of magicians all around the world, they have one of these bottles. And I guess it kind of, it's one of these things. If I'm ever feeling like I don't know how to do like a trick or if I don't know what's next or I don't know what I want to do in my life and all this sort of stuff, I come back to this. And it has that nice little message that goes with it. So um, yeah. that's that's an item that means a lot to me. And I, I make them myself now. We give them out and sell them at my shows as well. And it's just kind of a nice little nice little message people can take away. And I, I know there's a lot of people with them on their bookshelves and at work. And my wife has one at her work. And it's, just, it's a nice little thing to look at. Yeah. And look, and I love that. Anything is possible. I mean, you can't go wrong with that. You can't. And it's definitely a way a magician has to think. Our careers are very different, very unique. And there's a lot of, you know... Um, different things we have to overcome. So that message is always a pretty important thing to have, I think, for us. 
Cool. So can you tell us a little bit about your journey to become a magician? Like when, what, how does that happen? Yeah. And what was the process like for you? So, I mean, I saw a magic show when I was seven. That was the first show that I saw, a guy called Rudy Kobe, who is this American illusionist. And it wasn't until though I was uh, like 18 or 19 and I'd started to work in a corporate world. I was at a bank and I really enjoyed that job, but I went to the fringe in Adelaide and I saw this guy perform and it was a different guy, another magician. And I really enjoyed what he was doing, but I didn't love it. And I didn't get that same feeling I got when I was a kid. So turns out this guy actually worked at the bank uh, in the same office as me. I had no idea. And he taught me some very basic tricks but mainly taught me that you could learn magic. I was really fortunate. I met some really cool, exciting people in magic. So a guy by the name of Chris Kenner, uh, who is David Copperfield's executive producer. And it was just this crazy world. And as a 19, 20-year-old kid in Adelaide, maybe maybe there is a way I can make this to work. So I did. And I I ended up leaving my job at the bank. Uh, I was about 26 when I did that, so about five or so years ago. And just decided to follow follow the journey. Yeah. So, and I love that though. So, the other people in the in the industry were really supportive and open and happy to share, you know, and teach you. That's lovely. Yeah, they were. But Ooh. I actually found that there <laughs> but, were a lot that weren't. Yeah. So, you know, I guess how I came to to know Chris was that I went to this community in Adelaide, and the guys there were great. Don't get me wrong. But I remember when I first went there, as this young kid wanting to get into magic but also had a bit of background in business, I went there hoping that it would kind of be this open book and people would start talking about their experiences and not just how to do tricks, but how to make it a business and how to actually make this a career. And that was not the case at all. Like I went there and they were just showing off tricks to each other. And I was more interested in in the other stuff, the stuff that I thought made the show more important. And I realized quite quickly that um, I needed to find, I guess, an inspiration and that knowledge elsewhere. Um, so that's kind of where I went to the overseas route and spoke to these guys that had done it very well. Um, and I guess I kind of realized there was a bit of a gap there in in that industry, in that market, in, in Australia. So at that same time, when I was getting into it, I set up also a not-for-profit, um, which is called Mindblown, which still operates to this day. And it's basically like a talent school or a talent agency also um, that helps young performers to learn the business of performing. Um, because it's something that most performers don't know mm. <laughs> that like, and, and we, it's, there's no one teaches it. Uh, there isn't, and there isn't also just one way to do it as well. But I was finding a lot of the young magicians would only be able to have a conversation with a deck of cards in their hand. And when they did, they were so like, engaging and bright and great to talk to. But once that deck of cards went away, they would close off and they would just be completely closed. So I wanted to find out a way for these kids to learn how to be that person a bit more. You don't have to be that person all the time, but just sometimes more and learn how to do that um, in kind of different sort of settings. So that's kind of what we do. Mm, fantastic. And so, and how how is that working? How are you doing that? So I've got my own stuff obviously on the go and then Mindblown works um, kind of just, we've, we've automated a lot of it. Um, so, you know, people come in and they get bookings and, you know, that then flows off to the performers. Um, and then every year we pick one or two kids who come in and we teach them the skills and we just have coffees and chats and um, so little mentor sessions and that sort of stuff. And yeah, some of these guys, they, they start off, they don't know if magic could be a career. They don't even understand how it could become one. Uh, and we teach them that and then we get them gigs as well. I, I don't take a single dollar. I don't take a single cut. Um, we take uh, the GST so we can pay our GST bill and that is it. So you have these young kids coming in who go, well, 
um, magic's fun, but I don't know how to make it a career. And we say, well, we'll teach you. We'll teach you these skills. And then we're going to give you gigs that are going to give you a couple of thousand dollars a gig. Mm. Like huge dollars for these young kids. And their parents just go, wait, what? Like it's quite funny. There was one of the guys that I've been teaching for a number of years. I remember his dad was always so like just iffy on me. Just like just knowing that, oh, this guy must be getting something out of it. And I kept saying to him in his son, like, there's no goal, man. Like, if I wanted to take a percentage, I could quite easily take a percentage. But I just don't want to. And I know that's really bad business. And I get it. Like, I'm a business person. That's so stupid. But, like, also, your son is, like, killing it. Like, and that's great. Like, I love that. Um, and it wasn't until last Fringe when um, this performer was going through a bit of a rough patch. She had a, a really bad show. And I then decided the next day, let's spend five hours together. Let's get this show better let me know how it goes tonight and he just like did this killer show day two and his dad remember came up to me after and he's just like matt like you saved my son's fringe thank you like and it's ever since then every time i see him completely different person that's partly why i do it because i just love to spread a little bit of joy uh to these young performers and allow them to do the same well i think that's fantastic and so you're obviously really passionate about helping support and i suppose that comes from your own experience you know when you started and you, you, there wasn't that pathway for you so you're kind of like forging it for others yeah pretty much that's kind of what it is and, and you know it's funny because i'm still trying to forge a career for myself as well i've just kind of come to terms and to realize that you know i, I can do both and you know i can keep at both things and you know, maybe one of them might take off more than the other. And, and maybe the fact that I'm helping other performers, I might end up helping a performer that comes becomes better than me and might become bigger than me. And I've come to accept that that, that might actually happen. But if that does happen, like, that's still a pretty cool thing. Like, that's something that I can take some sort of um, happiness from. So, um, which is a good thing. I mean, like, there's a guy who, um, he won my, uh, there's a mentorship program at the Fringe they offer out with my name on it. And the guy that won it last year, I remember three years ago when I did my little competitor Google, which I do every maybe six months to find out, you know, who might be the next big thing that might take my place or whatever. He was like up there and I'm like, oh, this guy's he's real good. Like he's (laughs) real good. And then when he came in, he put this little mentorship application in and I went, yeah, you know what? Like maybe I can help him. Like, And, you know, maybe that means he's going to be bigger than me, but oh, wouldn't that be cool? Like, that'd be, that'd be cool. So um, that's just kind of how I try to operate. Like, I, you know, I don't, I don't need to be the biggest on the number one, but I want to be involved in whoever it is. Like, you know, so um, that, that, that'll be just as exciting for me, I think. Oh, that's great. So what are the challenges then along the way of, you know, your learning? <laughs> yeah, I, I like there are so many challenges and roadblocks yeah. in everything that I've done really. Um, Is there any key ones that sort of stand out and, and lessons you took away from them? Well, I think the biggest challenge was the very beginning and taking that first step. Uh, and, you know, I, I was in a really cushy high-end job at a bank, six figures. Uh, you know, I was, you know, happy there. It was, a, it was a good space. I had, you know, a lot of room to grow and, you know, there was potential for a lot of things. And then I was surrounded by so many really nice and great people who all either were really happy or were really happy but knew they could be happier doing something else. And they, I just kept saying, like, why are you doing it? Like, go, just go do it, man. And they're like, oh, yeah, like, I will, I will. And that was it for, like, four or five years to the same people. And I remember I went, God, that sucks. Like, why are they following their dreams? And I looked at myself and went, 
Like, why? You're, you're telling these people what to do, but you're not doing it. Like, you're just completely contradicting everything you're saying. So maybe you should go do it. And then I remember probably over the next three or four months, I, I started to lose a bit of love in that job. And my manager knew that. And I'd literally said to him, dude, I'm only here until I get a retrenchment package. I want some money to help my business. And that's what I'm here for. And I knew that retrenchment package probably at that point was never going to come because I knew I wanted out. Um, and it didn't. So I ended up just having to leave. And, but it was that. It was that moment of going, you know what, I have to I have to do this. Like I can't be one of these people that in 20 years time goes, yeah, oh, I wanted to do that as well. I wanted to do it. So that was that was the absolute biggest hurdle and then getting around people that I guess watch that and go well like that's oh I, how are you gonna make this work like is that gonna work like is that even a thing like well, my dad didn't even know he could be a professional magician and like it's only probably been the last like six months where he's like oh yeah okay it's that's a thing now that's cool <laughs> like and, and that was a hurdle and everyone was so supportive around me but like you just had to just do it and only you could do it. Like no one else is going to make that jump for me. No one ever, no one else is going to be able to make that decision. And as much support as I had around me, that was all on me. And that was probably the, the hardest thing I had to do. Mm. And, and then, you know, since then though, you've done amazing things. And this year, another really successful Adelaide Fringe, you know, award-winning Fringe season. You know, it's, it's pretty exciting. Yeah, it is. I mean, and that's one of the things, I mean, at the Adelaide Fringe, which has been a huge thing for me, um, since 2012, I think we've won an award every year. I think it was one we didn't. I Sometimes I have to sit back and go, that's actually really cool, Matt. Like, actually take a little bit of happiness from that, that you've done that. But it is, it's it's very exciting. And I am really proud of, of what, you know, myself and the guys that I work with and um, just the people around me that have been able to achieve in that time as well. Um, so, yeah, it's it's. It's pretty cool. Mm. And how do you s- scale it per se? Because you know it's it's you, <laughs> and until we get this magic cloning capability, yeah, um, you, you were always going to be limited to you know yourself. So well, how do you build that? I don't know. <laughs> I you have to have people around you that you trust is is the biggest thing I think, and you have to find people that do things better than you could do it. This was the first year where I brought in like an external person to help with something. It was, it was literally some social media paid ads, which like I do that as a profession. Like that's my thing. Like I'm really good at it. But I also went, ah, oh, I just think this guy could be better at it for this specific purpose. So let's just put the faith and trust in him. And that was really hard. And the amount of times I went on like Facebook ad manager and just checked to see what he was doing and being like, no, I would do it differently. Or why isn't he doing this? It was so hard, but it, that was, that was one of my first things. And, you know, my, um, my wife now works half a day on Mondays with me and helps me out with a few things. And, uh, there's a couple of magicians that have helped me over the last few years to put together tricks and ideas. And that's definitely helped, but it, it is really hard to scale a show and a business when you're only one person. Um, and probably the hardest thing we have found is scaling the show for the audience as well, because my show is just me and it is pretty, pretty bare. Like there's no staging. We don't have like flashy lights or flashy, like set pieces. It's just me usually and a stool and a table up on stage. Like that worked really well when our crowd was a hundred people. But now there's 600, 700, 1,000 people in my shows. And, and like 
I don't want them to lose that intimacy. I don't want them to lose that connection with me because that's, I think, something that's very important in my shows is that you feel like you know me or you're connecting with me. That That's really hard when there's a bigger audience. So I've just kind of had to learn from some of the best people that do it really well and connect to a large number of people and just kind of replicate sort of what they do. I don't know at what point it stops or what point we get to a point where it's not going to work anymore, but so far... So good. <laughs> and how do you build that connection with a you know a, an audience like you know as you say up to a thousand people? Mm. How does that work? What I try to do up on stage is just just kind of be nice, like just be nice and friendly and like personable. One of the things I found really interesting, I had a magician come to my show this year, and he his son was helping me sell merch, and I, they're both really great dudes and. The dad was standing there after and he just sent me a message after the show and said, Matt, I, I was listening into your audience after. I just wanted to let you know what they were saying because most of them didn't actually say anything about the show or the magic itself. Like the ones that did loved it, but most people left and they said one of two or three things. Wow. Like he's really nice. Like, And then the second one was, wow, he's going out there and shaking every single person's hand. I've never seen someone that like that size do that. That is incredible. And the other one was um, they were just basically saying that they felt connected to the show despite the fact that it was so big. And and that for me, that means more than them saying, oh, what a great card trick. Because they liked everything, the, the presence of it all, the presence of me, the presence of the show, and they liked me. And that's what will have people coming back because mm. they actually want to support me. Um, which like, is, is really, really important. So being approachable and, you know, making time to talk to your audience is something that you always try to do? Yeah, I try to be. I try to be as much as I can. Um, and it's like without sounding like a diva, like it is a bit like draining sometimes for sure. Because you'll get people that will say, oh, that was crap or terrible or whatever without the realisation that, that person's like, that is a person. Like, be a little bit kind. Yeah, so how do you deal with that, you know, if you get negative feedback? Because it is a personal expression that you're out there. Knock on wood, I'm very lucky that it doesn't happen much anymore. At the end of the day, I had 10,000 people come to see my show this year and the same last year and almost the same the year before. So I must be doing something right. Yeah. So if one person's not liking it. But it's just not for them. It's just not for them. And I've said that. Like, that's that sucks. I'm sorry you didn't like it. And actually, you know, that's you probably went out and that was a show that you really wanted to see and you were hoping it was going to be good. No one goes to see a show very often to go, I hope it's rubbish. I hope I hate this show. <laughs> like, people go because they want to like it. And the fact they didn't, oh, that sucks. I'm sorry. You know, I've had people say, oh, I didn't like him. And I'm like, well, here's some shows that you might like that might be a bit different. And that way to approach things has made me think a little bit differently about bad reviews and bad comments and that sort of stuff just to go, well, you know what? It is, it is just one person's opinion. And that's why I also try not to have too much value on the bad, but also to do that, I have to also not put much value on the good as well, which is a thing that I learned from being on a reality TV show. So when you see a good comment, don't let it get you up. Don't let it bring you up because when it brings you up, you're going to put as much value on the negativity and that's going to bring you even further down. It sounds ungrateful because when you get, you know, good sales and you win awards and this sort of stuff, quite often a lot of these things are based off of one person's decision to buy a ticket or to get a, go give you an award or whatever. And like, that's so good and I really, really appreciate it. But if I put too much value on that, when someone hates my show or hates me, it, I put the same value on it. And it brings me down twice as hard. And, and as you know, the negativity gets you down a lot further than anything positive could ever possibly do. 
Um, so yeah, a friend, a friend of mine who was on um, Survivor with me said that same thing that they just just don't put any value in it. If someone says, "Oh, I love Matt on Survivor, he's great," yeah, that's fine. I don't, I'm not putting any value in my mind on that though. That is just your one person's opinion, just like it is if you hated me. Mm. And so, did what was the Survivor experience like as far as your your magic? Like, you know, did did it help with the profile or anything? I don't know. It was a while ago, though, wasn't it? Yeah, so it was 2016, so three years. So it's not too long ago, but the 15 minutes is probably definitely well and truly over if it ever begun. When I went on Survivor, the first thing is to be very clear, I didn't do it for the publicity. I just did it because I really loved Survivor. So I didn't really care at the end of the day. But the, the biggest thing I was worried about, and as was my wife, was that what if I'm not liked? Like, what if I'm a nasty person? What if, what if, whether through the edit or whether it's through the way that I play, whether it is nasty and people don't like me? Yeah, because they've always got to have a villain. There's always they? a villain. Yeah, yeah. And no one's going to go see the magician who is an arsehole on no. TV. <laughs> I don't think anyway. I don't actually know if anyone or many people anyway would go and see a magic show because they saw a dude on Survivor. In fact... I would argue that more people would not go see a magic show because I was on a reality TV show because they think I'm rubbish at magic and I would just on a reality TV show to sell my product, which is rubbish. But I think a lot of people thought that I did like either reality TV to get big or after being on a reality TV show, I decided to learn magic to try to make some money from it. <laughs> and I've told those people that if there was literally anything I wanted to do to make money on after being a reality TV show, being a magician is not the thing that you would possibly do. So, yeah, I, I don't know. It, it definitely helped with a little bit of brand recognition, but and was it not fun? over the top. Did you love it? Oh, it was the absolute best and worst thing you could ever possibly do. The challenges, the actual survivor experience was the funnest thing ever. Um, even even the gameplay and the strategy and all that sort of stuff that came with it was a lot of fun as well. But being on a TV show is one of the worst things as well. If it was literally just go and live on an island for a month or two and try to be the last person there and there's no money but there's also no TV show, I think I'd prefer to do it that way than I would the way that we've done it. Because um, it is, it is, it's really hard being on a TV show. You're opening yourself up to this world where you really don't have a huge amount of control over how you're shown or if you're shown or when you're shown and the experience that you have in your head from it isn't the experience that they're going to show on TV. So it's, it's, it's hard and, and you're kind of constantly combating that. So um, it, it took over probably 18 months of my life rather than, you know, the 60 days that everyone saw. Um, I didn't stop thinking about it. I didn't stop Googling what was going on, what people were saying, reading forums and all this sort of stuff and um, you know me and my wife really struggled through that time we were you know really not in a good space um and you know fortunately we're very well past that now um but it, it was hard yeah it was really hard mm. yeah the unseen side of yeah TV. it is and you, and you hear a lot of people talk about it and like it's one of these weird things because i say all these things and i mean all these things but then if they said to me tomorrow hey do you want to go back oh i'd consider it like, and that's so stupid because I also know how bad it would be for my head. But, oh, it'd be fun. Like, because as a human, we forget about all these negatives all of a sudden. We just go, oh, the positives. Yeah, that'd be great again. Leaving an island, losing 15 kilos again might be nice. I'll probably, I'll probably still do it though. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So that's out there. Uh, <laughs> 
All right. Now you mentioned, I just want to go back as well about building your show and audience. And you mentioned that, you know, social media has been a good communication channel for you and you brought someone in this year to do that. Is that the main way that you communicate? Like how over the period of time have you built an audience? A few, few a variety of different ways, but social media definitely was one of, if not the biggest one. And I think I was probably in the arts industry a fairly early adapter to it as well. So back in, you know, the 2012, 2013, and I was on to, you know, different ideas that, you know, people wouldn't have really heard of prior to them existing. Like just even stupid things like that everyone does now, you know, the follow and unfollow and like the liking random posts to get engagement and the posting at the right time and posting consistently and all these things that everyone does now that I don't do anymore. (laughs) Um, And I only really was that because I just enjoyed doing it. And I would happily research things like social media and like new trends and all this sort of stuff. But but also, I guess, kind of growing influences. And I don't mean that in the way that people use that term now, but more so just like actual real world influences and, and, and helping people to understand how if they talk about me and if they talk about my show, how that helps. You know, telling them genuinely, hey, if you do a post on Facebook for me tonight, that's going to sell me tickets and that will help. And I am a struggling artist and uh, that's not a lie now. It wasn't a lie back then. You know, I, I, I need people at my show or I, so I'm going to go bankrupt. And I can say that pretty much about every tour that I do. It's pretty much always the same case. Um, and, you know, teaching them that. So I think that was an important thing for me to find is finding these brand influences, but not in the way that people use that term now, not in a negative way or not in a the posting t fighting kits on Instagram way, a way where they genuinely wanted to help and would genuinely do that. Um, without it sounding cheap or like it's a sales pitch. Mm. Is that like, you know, people, friends, family? Like how do you go about or you just identified people? It's friends and family, but that stuff won't get you too far. So the first year I did the Adelaide Fringe, as an example, we did a free show and we performed for like over 24 nights, I think it was, and seven or eight different venues across that time. And we just went out there and performed for people. And it's like funny, I still get people to this day like, oh, yeah, my friend knows you. Um you did like some magic for them at this uh, at this pub? And I'm like, oh, yeah. I mean, I don't really know that person. It was eight years ago and <laughs> I performed for them for three minutes and had a quick chat to them. But I guess we're friends. Yeah, I guess. But like, that's, that's so nice. If someone took that away from that conversation, that trick, that's what I want because it means it's worked. If they consider me a friend or if they consider me, you know, someone they know, they're going to talk about me and they're going to promote me. But like all of this goes back to the idea that you have to do that genuinely. Mm. Yeah, you have to you have to be the real Matt. You'd, yeah, you totally. I think the fact that I try to humanize myself, people kind of accept sometimes if I do the wrong thing or if I say the wrong thing, or whatever, because they, they they get it. Mm. Um, I'm not trying to pretend that I'm perfect or that I'm you know this. I never get anything wrong because I get things wrong all the bloody time. Um, but I'm, I really think that's really important. What you said there is that you humanize it, and I think in in all aspects of business we need to do that because it's when you know when a business becomes that corporate business people can then be much more judgmental but when there's a and because businesses are made up of people and when we allow ourselves to you know businesses to humanize that element then people are more forgiving totally 100 percent. all right well so a couple of things to bring us towards conclusion though matt first of all be the drop is based on a quote that i love which is a waterfall begins with one drop so and that you know be the drop concept is that these people 
who like yourself who you know communicate your passion and motivate and inspire others within it um, create waterfalls so do you have any sort of saying I mean you've got anything is possible is there anything else that like you sort of resonates with you I think anything is possible is probably one of the big ones that I really I really stand by but I've never been a big fan of of sayings and it comes from my corporate background I think where there was a manager there who had all of these different like one-liners and I just couldn't buy into it because it just felt a bit fake. But like Be The Drop is, I mean, that is pretty much how I live, I think. So that's a good one. I said before about these people that worked in this corporate world and they worked at the bank and they had these dreams and they weren't going out there. A lot of them have now. And a lot of them have said to me, you know what, Matt, like you did inspire me to actually do that. And, you know, I've had people who's like their son, there's this lovely lady that I used to work with who her son is a fantastic uh, footballer, like a soccer player. And the other one is a fantastic um, e-sports player. And they, and they both supposedly take a lot of credence from what I've done and, and, you know, how I follow my passion and my goals. That sort of thing for me is just as important. Not only the people that I'm directly helping, but I'm sure there's people out there that maybe just are doing different things because of what they've seen. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much. And in conclusion, though, can you share with me Matt's Be The Drop tip? So that's your top tip for communicating with influence. How, you know, what do you think is the number one way to motivate and inspire others? I think what you have to do is just trust yourself. Just sometimes just give it a shot and and know that there's going to be times where you're going to achieve a lot of things and there's going to be a lot of excitement, you know, things will work. But when it goes poorly, which it does, and it goes poorly for me all the bloody time, when it does, you have to be even stronger then and you really have to. And if you, if you fall apart then, that's okay. To take it back to something that happened to me last year, uh, I did a festival over in Perth and the company went bankrupt, lost $40,000 of my own money and that was really really hard it almost broke my family we we had no money basically and when it came around to doing the fringe over there this year the same festival over in perth there were maybe eight acts that got impacted by this and i think only three returned two of those being the two biggest losers in that situation me and a guy called matt hale and i took so much from the fact that i did that to actually just have the guts and that determination and will to not let anything else that anyone else does get in your way. Because that situation had nothing to do with me. I didn't lose money because of a mistake that I made. So don't let that impact what I'm going to do with my life. Control what you can control. If someone else does something that makes you lose a bit of control and stuff, just remember that that wasn't you, that wasn't your mistake, and keep keep fighting for that goal. Don't Don't lose sight of it. So set goals and aim for them. Don't ever stop. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Matt. That's great. What a fabulous positive note to end on. Well, hopefully. It came with, it, <laughs> I worked it into something. <laughs> yes, I don't know. With, with the heartache comes all great yeah. games. I don't know if we're going to be able to print that on a coffee mug, but um, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll try it. It's a really small font. It could be font. an upsized mug. Yeah. <laughs> right, great. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for joining me for another episode of Be The Drop. 
Don't forget to subscribe in order to ensure you never miss out on one of our weekly episodes. Be The Drop is produced by Narrative Marketing, where we believe that stories connect individuals and that powerful storytelling can positively impact the world. To unleash your storytelling superpower, visit narrativemarketing.com.au or check out our social links in the show notes. To contact me directly with any specific comments you have, you can email me via amelia at narrativemarketing.com.au. And don't forget that whilst a task or challenge may seem overwhelming, a waterfall begins with one drop and look what comes from that. <laughs>